0: blog talk radio
1: Welcome back to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast with more celebrities than the inauguration, the podcast that loves you. I'm your host, your groove mistress, and your cruise director, Madam Perry. But you can call me Jen, Jennifer, JP. It's all good. I'm just happy that you're here and happy I am too. Thanks to everyone who's been subscribing, especially now that we're also on um, iHeartRadio and Spotify. Thank you so very much uh, for subscribing and downloading. I appreciate it. And also for the very nice reviews people have left for the podcast on uh, Stitcher and Apple iTunes, thank you so much for that too. I do appreciate it. So just to go over what um, things have been happening, you know, a few weeks ago, Ricky Bird returned to the show. He had been on a couple of years ago with his new CD, Sobering Times. And you know, Ricky Bird, you may know him uh, if you're close to my age. From he was a uh, he's actually he's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. Uh, when he for when he was with the band Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, but this was his second CD since he's been a recovery counselor, and it's called Sobering Times. Um, he sent me a couple. I can send them to you. Um, I've got two right now. He may send me more. So here's what you can do. I don't have anybody to draw this one, uh, to do the drawing. So if you can send, if you can tell me, which one of my guests, and it was in the last few months, which one of my guests. And this has nothing to do what he was on the sh- with what he was on the show talking about, but the guest who was a graduate of Zombie School. Just message that in to me, and then I'll send you uh, Ricky for his CD. And it might have something with it, like a pic or a sticker or whatever he sends. Um, also, uh, who else? Do we have Dave Kyle, the saxophonist. Uh, you know, he was on a couple of months ago with his new CD, A New Day. And uh, which he meant to be a virtual hug for everyone going through all this, uh, however COVID is affecting you right now. And also Dave Kuzn, I think he's doing a virtual tour too, but it's a great CD, so thanks to him. Um, Arden Marine, who plays Regina Sinclair on Insatiable. She was here, I think it was, this is December, I believe it was uh, October. And yes, if you buy her book, Little Miss Little Compton, if she still has some, you will get the special tote bag that she made, and it is so cute. So people have sent me pictures of that, so that'll be fun. Also, last week, we had Jerry Mitchell, and this was a show that really got a lot of, uh, I got a lot of response from for people who cared about the, who who really were interested in this guest and his book. Jerry Mitchell, his book is called Race Against Time. And it just came out earlier this year. It's still in uh, hardback. It should be in paperback soon, but it's also, of course, an ebook. Race Against Time is how, as a journalist for the last 20, 25 years, the work he did investigating and bringing people to trial for crimes committed by Klansmen in uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, a case that's in the Mississippi Burning film, uh, also the murder of Vernon Dahmer, um, Medgar Evers and the four girls who uh, young girls who were killed in, in the uh, church bombing and the story is 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 wild it's It's more than any action movie you've ever seen what this man went through to get everything pulled together to get these people brought to trial and uh, and convicted and imprisoned It's amazing so Jerry Mitchell race against time. Definitely get that book too. Now tonight's guest, oh, oh, and next week we have a very funny lady. I know you need some funny right now. Uh, she's stand-up comic. Uh, she travels. She tours. She's got. She was on Last Comic Standing. She's had several uh, specials. Uh, she, you can also catch uh, her her show. I think it's called These Lips. It's on Amazon. Oh, and and uh, so she's going to be here next. Wednesday. Wait, Wednesday. I think it's Monday. Um, anyway, she will be here. Jackie Monahan, hilarious lady, and another funny person that was on. And uh, we want to talk about him because he's going. He's asked everybody to uh, think about him, give good thoughts. He's going to have going in the hospital, and that is Michael DeBar or Mike Marquis. Michael DeBar. Uh, you might listen to him in the mornings on Little Stevens Underground on Sirius XM Channel Twenty One, or You may have seen, uh, you may love him as as Murdoch in the MacGyver series, or you may have seen his recent, uh, it's it's actually a documentary about him that he was on here to talk about a couple of months ago called, Who Do You Want Me To Be?, Um, all about Michael DeBarge, his career as a musician and an actor. And uh, so he's asked that we all send him good thoughts, and we do, we will, uh, because he's a, a sweetheart of a guy. So, Tonight's guest, I am so super psyched. Uh, his book is the kind that you I, – I read it, and then I stop it, and I read it again, and I look things up, and um, I am thrilled to have him here. He's an award-winning sociologist, uh, author, teacher, activist focusing on labor and work issues around the world, professor of sociology at Middlebury, and he's won several scholarly awards, appeared in uh, Washington Post, Mother Jones, Jacobin, Dissent, uh, several magazines. His book, Worked Over, How Round-The-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream, focuses on labor time and work culture in the U.S., it's published by, <clears throat> excuse me, by Basic Books. Please welcome for his very first time here to the Genie Bottle, hopefully not his last Jamie K. McCallum, welcome to Madam Perry's Salon. Hi,
0: thanks for having me.
1: I am delighted to have you here. I hope you're comfortable. I didn't know if you knew you were going to be in a genie bottle here out here in cyberspace. But, uh...
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure. That's exciting. That's my first time for that.
1: <laughs> oh, good, good, very good. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, sometimes, every now and then a guest that's been on will, you know, call back and say, did you see the Did I leave a sandwich there or something or, you know, still a pillow? But I I think it's pretty clean right now, I hope, so I hope you're comfortable. So welcome, welcome here, and uh, you don't have to call me Madam. You can call me Jen, JP, Perry, whatever. Okay, Um, great. But I'm thrilled to have you here. Your book, Worked Over, Around the Clock Works, Killing the American Dream, is, you know, I almost want to say – it's like a work of art, a work of love. It's like, it's definitely a labor of, I, you have really, you have just really exposed what so many hundreds and thousands of people are going through, or hundreds of thousands are going through uh, with work, with trying to stay alive, with trying to keep up, We're trying to keep their families fed and mm-hmm. um, medical care and, Try to make a buck. It's just astounding. It's things that a lot of us know, but sometimes we don't know how many other people are going through this, and we don't know what's happening. It's like we're down at the bottom of the water, and we don't know what's happening on, up on the top of the water. <laughs> so right,
0: right, exactly, yeah.
1: So please tell exactly. me how how you uh, came to write this book, why you wrote it. and uh,
0: Yep, sure. Then, no, I, 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 That's great. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Um, so I, as you said in your introduction, I'm a sociologist, and I study work and labor issues in American political economy. And a number of years ago, I read a story about a woman named Maria Fernandez, and who is one of the stories starts off one of the chapters, the first chapter of the book. And Maria was a She worked at Dunkin' Donuts in northern New Jersey, and um, she was working about three different, I think three different Dunkin' Donuts jobs, and in between shifts, she used to sleep in her car uh, because she didn't have time to go home and rest before the next one. And once, she slept, and she never woke up, and she died of a combination of physical exhaustion and carbon monoxide poisoning in her Dunkin' Donuts uniform. And I read the story, and it, it, it shocked me because it got a little press at the time, but then quickly disappeared. And here was a, a woman who was just an ordi- ordinary, average, low-wage person, like so many people are, working close to 70, 75 hours a week um, in the richest country in the world, and uh, couldn't, despite that, could not make ends meet. Um, and her story led to an outcry about long hours and overwork for a moment, but then it disappeared. And there's so many people like her and so many people in her position that I began interested in sort of the, the general phenomenon more so than just her story. So that's yeah. – so I took up this book that basically, um, that basically examines this phenomenon writ large throughout the country in the last – Thirty or forty years.
1: And you, there was another story you told also at the beginning, and I think this was someone on a—I uh, forget his name—I'm going to look it up. Um, also, what they call it, i guess—a gig worker um, riding a bicycle, making deliveries.
0: Uh, yeah, that's right. So, so the gig economy. Um, the. The gig economy describes, obviously, the kinds of people who work for platform companies and work, you know, sort of by the job. And um, uh, this fellow was riding his bike one night for Caviar, which was an app, uh, sort of a food delivery app, and was riding through the rain, dangerous conditions. Um, There were, there had been sort of, not promises, but advertisements of higher wages during dangerous conditions. And he was eventually that night, uh, I believe, sidelined by a car in Philadelphia and was killed. And um, his friends and family rallied to his defense, arguing that the sort of gig economy companies puts people like him routinely in these situations where they're pressured to work uh, long hours, sometimes dangerous hours, and often dangerous conditions. Um, They raised money for his funeral, for example, So his family could have a funeral. And um, so again, another low wage worker. I mean, there's a million stories, which I did not include, which we could go on. I mean, there's a a story of a a bank intern, I think in 2013 who just collapsed dead in the shower from basically exhaustion in Japan. There, there's a whole word for this called uh, Karoshi, which is death by overwork. But in America, Well, we don't have such a word, and we often don't have the phenomenon does not go noticed as much. When we talk about overwork in the United States, we mostly talk about um, uh, high-wage, high-earning men who work in white-collar jobs, like bankers Mm -hmm. and lawyers and doctors and and corporate lobbyists and -and so-and-so. And those people do, in fact, work more hours than anybody else. They also make a lot more money than everybody else. And so I was interested in illuminating the change in in working time at the bottom of the working pyramid. And so over the last 40 years, the most dramatic shift has been low-wage workers working far more hours than before. They've increased their hours, I think, about 25% over the last 40 years, whereas those at the top have always worked long hours and continue to do so. And the bottom of the wage pyramid, of course, is predominantly or is disproportionately women and people of color. So there's a whole different world down there that I think the focus on overwork to miss.
1: Yes, and, and that's the thing we talk about. The world tends to miss. I mean, how, like in the case of Maria Fernandez, how can they not know? She's working at three different Dunkin' Donuts. It's not like she's working at three different businesses altogether. So it's the same company. They know what kind of time she, she turns in. Um, they know how many hours she's working. And I guess they're just happy that she's doing it. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me like there's, like there's just no conscience that somebody doesn't say, hey, this is a lot of hours. This is a lot for one woman.
0: Uh, yeah, well, right. Well, there is no m- – many countries have a maximum hour law. Where you can't work over, you know, sixty-five or seventy hours a week or whatever. We don't have such a law, and um, uh, we should. <laughs> so it's not that people don't notice people are overworked. I mean, it's not just, you know, retail workers, home health care workers, um, all kinds of service economy people, to some extent, industry people, but that's a little bit more regulated. So there's a whole sort of wild west out there of the, of the low wage economy, which is rather unregulated and, um, or okay. has been deregulated rather. And so people have to do what they have to do. You know, the main reason that people are working so many hours or have increased their working hours over the last couple of decades is because people can't afford to work less. It's actually not that, you know, there's no great math in my book. Um, It's that over the course of the last four decades, corporate profits have soared, wages have stagnated, and the price of goods and services have gone up. And so to make do, people have to work longer hours. And that's just, you know, there's tons of people who actually want to work more hours but don't have enough but can't find a job that will hire them with enough hours. So that's the other thing. There's this strange situation where you have people who are basically complaining about having not enough time on their hands, not enough free time, and are overworked, and another group of people who are desperate for more hours, like just enough to get by. So that sort of paradoxical situation, I think, really defines life at the, among low-wage workers.
1: And, yeah, let me get back to the, to the phrase uh, corporate profits have soared while wages have stagnated. And, and how can anybody think good? And, and, and like I said, again, it's like no one seems to have a conscience about these workers.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's, it's not a good situation. So, but there's a pretty clear explanation you know, that for a long time, well, there's, there's two things, two dynamics that we should discuss. So for a long time in American society, for like 125 years, the hours of labor declined pretty steadily. And once child labor has worked overtime, we don't have that situation as much anymore. And the primary reason why working hours declined for 100 years is because people fought for that decline. And they pressured governments to pass laws. They pressured corporations to change their um, way of operating. And over the course of a century, people won the 40-hour work week, largely through unions and trade unions and allied uh, reformers. The attack on trade unions that began really in earnest in the early 70s, 1970s, has beaten back the power of organized labor. And it's not surprising, therefore, that they've lost the power to control how much time people have on the job. And so we have sort of a V-shaped curve where labor time goes down, 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 down to the early 70s, and then basically goes up, 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 until around 2009. And it sort of planes off since then. So on average, American workers are working About 13% more, which is about five and a half weeks per year, which is pretty significant, actually. Like we are, we have a worse standard of living than we did 40 years ago, but we work five and a half hours um, a week more. And that situation right there tells you that people are putting in a lot to the American economy, but they're not getting their fair share out of it. And so that basic injustice what some people call exploitation, is the main sort of moral reason I guess I wrote the book. And,
1: and we thank you. Let's um, talk about y- unions. Um, was, there, was there some kind of an idea about a comeback of, of unions in the 80s? Because I know in the late, mid to late 80s, I was working uh, in customer service at a, um, at a telecommunications company, and all of a sudden – at these meetings, somebody would come out in human resources or the, or the boss would come out about, no matter what we were talking about, no matter what the subject was for these all-hands meetings, all of a sudden it was. But the last thing you want to do is get in a union with our, nobody brought up a union, you know, or would have other meetings. It'd be something about, uh, uh, with HR, it'd be about to sit down and go, well, you know, if you were in a union, you wouldn't said, look, we're talking about the holiday party. We're not talking about anything else. They brought it right. up with every. Breath, no matter what we were discussing, and yeah. uh, they, God, somebody's scared of us getting a union here. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, so to be very upfront, I'm a former union organizer, and I'm still sort of a union activist where I work now. And um, so let me, you know, let me just say that, yeah, there's there's not an employer in in the country that wants you to join a union. And as soon as they think you want to join a union, all of a sudden they start caring about all kinds of things, like how you spend your money, for example, because they always talk about union dues. Um, uh-huh. There is no, you know, there is a, so from my perspective, there is a basic facet about democratic society, and that is that the people who work in a country need a voice in their job to help make decisions about hours, conditions, pay, standards, etc. And without a union you have no voice. And 93% of the of the private sector in America has no union. And so from that standpoint there's no such thing there's almost no such thing as a democratic workplace. The what you said about the 80s is sort of correct. I mean Reagan had Reagan early on in, in 1981 did an amazing thing, which was to fire the striking air traffic controllers. He fired 11,000 people overnight because they were on strike. And since, and that was a very decisive and historical moment in which he sort of struck the fear of God into organized workers and said, we will, you know, we will screw you. We will fight you tooth and nail. And when you compare the American experience of being a worker to, for example, the European one, it's really, it's really night and day. I mean, even the right wing in Europe doesn't really come out as viciously against unions as do some moderate Republicans in America. So the situation is just very, very hostile. And I think that the primary reason is not because union workers make more money, which they do, or union workers have more vacation time or whatever, which they do, but because unions give you a voice and unions give you a semblance of control. And employers like having all of that control. And so they fight tooth and nail. It's the same, you know, I'm not sure, you know, you said you work in telemarketing. You know, frankly, it's not uncommon. We're, we're, I mean, I work in a private college. We, It's actually illegal for us to have a union, right? <laughs> so there is an incredible part of the American economy, which is structured to keep you from joining one. And I think that's a real, you know, it's a real injustice.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and that was, uh, uh, I'm not there anymore, but that was another job where, yeah, they would always somehow sucker you into unpaid overtime and so forth. And another job, and I think this was mentioned there too, was something like waitresses uh, and uh, retail Things. I've I've worked a lot of retail, and I've even hustled snake oil, which is what I call working at the cosmetic counter. And, yep. And it's you know it's like a Christmas time. I mean they've got people working till 11:30 at night and then start back up at six the next morning on their on their schedule. If I laid down here in the bay and slept, and they got back up, I wouldn't get eight hours of sleep or even six. Right, but, uh, but they always seem to find a way to to, to get you just under 40, and they, if they report, right. or um, one of my favorites was some of us came in early one day at the cosmetics area, and they said, "Oh, clock in on your register. If you do it now, it'll fall off. Just write down what time you came in. It goes, it'll fall off. How will it fall off?" But I guess they figured, you know we we wouldn't know any better.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that, that's that's I mean, that's crazy, but it's also very common. Like the situation you described is what people call clopening, where you close the shop one night and open it up less than I think, less than 10 hours later. And that that clopening shift, which is very popular in retail, formula retail, has recently faced a lot of, um, you know, uh, protests for lack of a better word, from, from workers. And there's, I think, in four, maybe seven states, there are laws against clopening now or regulations that sort of um, guard against it because, you know, in addition to long hours or in addition to insufficient hours, um, people have volatile hours, and which means that, you know, you're scheduled for a four-hour shift and then a seven-hour shift, and then an 11-hour shift, and then a three-hour shift. And sometimes your shift is changed in the middle of your shift. Sometimes it's extended. Sometimes it's cut. And those things make it almost impossible to survive with one job, but also impossible to hold down, too, because you can't really plan. So it creates an incredibly precarious situation for a lot of retail and low-wage workers. And there has recently been a movement called the Fair Work Week uh, movement uh, among unions and, and even non-unionized workers to sort of push back on that and to win regulations that make it uh, clear that bosses have to give you a reasonable schedule with reasonable time in advance so that you can actually plan your life.
1: Yeah. And, and the sad thing too about the retail is that, you know, I've always told people, well, that's at least a job you can always get. If if anything else closes down, they always need a high turnover, Understandably so in retail, you can always go. But the thing is, if I went back to if I went to a retail job today, I'd still be making the same thing I made twenty or thirty years ago at it. You know, it's still the same thing. And there is one major department store that I learned about. If you get up to a certain pay rate, you have to quit for three months and then start back at the beginning rate. Jesus. And I won't name it, but it is. Okay. yeah, I'm going to be careful not to name it, but it, but it is a very well-known store. Everybody has them. And when I first I found see. out about that, when I was working a, a job with them about 10 years ago, I was I said, what, really? Really? And they go, yeah, everybody knows. Everybody in the area knows that, you know, you might need a job for three months and then go back. And I just thought, well, as my dear friend Esther would say, that's some plantation bullshit right there. Um, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a direct quote from Esther, right. but it's right on, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. Esther is right. I mean, Esther is very right. There is a, you know, I mean, we see it now with the language that people use to describe essential workers during the pandemic as heroes and blah, 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 whatever. If we paid them like Mm -hmm. heroes, that would be one thing. But Mm -hmm. it's very common that we use that language as sort of a bulwark against treating them as such. And people really are, um, you know, we call them essential, but in many ways they're just sacrificial. They have to work regardless. They have to work when the rest of us, you know, could go home. When I worked my white-collar job, I got to go work from my home. Like, you know, obviously a lot of people, tens of millions of people did not. And there was no lockdown for them. And I think that, you know, treating people as if they're just sacrificial And not giving them hazard pay, not giving them protections on the job, slow to give them PPE, um, all those things is just uh, a level of moral failure that we haven't even really grasped yet. And that I think future historians will look back on 2020 and say, I cannot believe that people in Walmart or people in giant grocery worked like that because it's just, you know, it's just, it's incredible. It's really incredible.
1: Yeah, and, and you're right. All these people, I always think about when they say, oh, you're heroes. Oh, you're wonderful. You know, we couldn't do without you. And they put up signs or whatever. Like, well, why not treat them like it? It's like, it's like telling somebody, like you're trying to appease them with words while you're, you know, snatching money out of their back. Pocket. You're doing a great job. You really are. And then, um, yeah. and then stabbing them in the back, really. You know, it's just uh. I don't know. By the way, this is a good time to say that if you are listening to us live tonight, and this is uh, December the 9th, 2020, at 829 p.m. Eastern, um, and you have a question or comment for Jamie K. McCallum, I'm sure he wouldn't mind, just give us a call at 646-716-9922, at 646-716-9922, or... I have a question or comment, but you can't make a call right now. You can always send me a message on uh, send me a message through Facebook either on Madame Perry's salon page or Jennifer Modette Perry and I'll be happy to share it. okay well, we got some more stuff to talk about, but right now um, I'm going to take a little break about about one minute. Jamie, you can get another glass of water and uh or whatever you need right now, and <laughs> so will I, and we'll be right back.
2: So Chuck okay, thanks. talk to us about Fisdale being the Knicks new coach. What's your uh, thoughts on that? Well well I will tell you right now, Ernie, it don't matter who's gonna coach this team, they don't got no talent on you it. And I don't I don't really feel I talk about That's kinda true. harsh. I don't feel I talk about the Knicks right Can now. We talk about lunch? No. Well <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Chuck? See Ernie, I've been listening to a podcast called Madame Perry Salon. And I think Jennifer Perry She's a great host. I mean, she got all best bestseller authors, Rostoff, all the dip comedians. What about people you that go, don't have a <laughs> Here we go. Got Real, fun up, <laughs> her. Real fun. <laughs> but I think she's great, and I think people would love her show. She got a great laugh. She make, The laugh come out of nowhere, like an eagle come in there and just steal the whole show. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not terrible. All
1: right. Madam Perry Salon. And I'm back with author and sociologist Jamie K. McCallum. And you know, Jamie, if, if you heard my buddy there, Charles say it's not the podcast is not terrible. That's a much bigger compliment to me than somebody that's just <laughs> buttering me up while they steal money out of my pocket. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yep.
1: I learned a, a lot of new words in your book, and I don't know if there's if there are particular areas that you want to focus on first.
0: Uh, well, what do you mean you learned a lot? Okay,
1: I, didn't know, I didn't know what a mechanical turk was.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is something that I think we should, it's interesting to talk about now, especially because with the Christmas season ramping up, um, you know, everyone and their mother is going to be shopping on Amazon soon. And I try as I might to avoid it, I'll probably end up doing some of it, too. And so a Mechanical Turk is, or people call it M Turk is the sort of short way that we describe workers for Amazon who do sort of invisible labor, who are... So we occasionally are seen as if the work is being done by robots, but it's actually being done by people, by... Um, by independent contractors. So, for example, if you fill in those, um, you know, things that say identify a stop sign to proceed with this password or whatever, like, you know, there are MTurk workers who have tagged, you know, millions and millions and millions of stop signs on the internet to give us that code. It's not done by, by robots or it's not automated yet. And so what this suggests is that there are obviously, in I think there's general knowledge of this. The largest companies in the world are, are based upon or function well because low-wage workers, seasonal workers, at-will people um, work around the clock. And so one thing I was interested in viewing this or writing this book was to sort of spotlight the ways those people not only work and sacrifice, but also uh, resist, protest, organize, fight back, uh, uh, et cetera. Because I think that very often in America, we think of poor people and poor workers, especially as victims. Of course, that's sometimes true, but they've also typically been the engine of a lot of change. And that's the same, the same is true of Amazon. There's tons of Amazon workers, that have been organizing uh, since the pandemic started to push back on the way that Amazon.
1: We've all read a lot and heard a lot more about that lately than we have had before. I think even um, in his monologue one night last week or before, uh, Jimmy Fallon said something about, oh, it's, it's uh, oh, I think it's before Thanksgiving. And he said, in fact, uh, employees are trying to be good to their workers. In fact, Amazon, for Thanksgiving gave their workers um, an extra ninety seconds to go to the bathroom.
0: Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well yeah pretty- well yeah that's that's interesting i mean it's it's interesting that i mean great, we all need an extra ninety seconds for that and what's 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 amazing is that it was timed you know it's not like you said you've got an extra bathroom break. Take it at your leisure, right? And that, so that little bit is really interesting. I mean, there are companies now which are building and installing toilets in their workplaces, which are slanted, which make it uncomfortable to sit on for a very long time. So that you'll get on and off quickly and back to work. And uh, there are people, there there are companies that are saying break rooms are not COVID safe. And rather than make them COVID safe, they're just deterring people from going into the break room, right? Because the windows don't open or what have you. And this, this minuscule level of timing and monitoring and surveilling people is not a new phenomenon, but it's reached a new level, I think, especially in the last decade. And so okay. some of this book, some parts of the I'm book was about sort of the history of that. And some of it was about the more recent stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. And by the way, I don't know if that was true about the 90 seconds, or if that was just part of Fallon's, um, his writers came up with that, but it's to to say something like that in a monologue, it's pretty, yeah, definitely make a point. They don't just come up with that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, it's indicative of a trend. So,
1: yes. And that shows how a, a lot of people are already aware of things like this. Uh, I was reading the uh, the review of Worked Over Publishers Weekly, and here where they're talking about uh, it says McCallum notes that in the past forty years, CEO pay soared by an inconceivable one thousand seventy percent, and productivity increased by seventy percent, but hourly wages of average workers limped forward just twelve percent, and then is the gamification, in quotes, of work has exacerbated the situation, according to McCallum. The gamification of work, what does that mean?
0: Uh, That just means, so the first part, obviously, is just about rising inequality. And rising inequality charts very closely with increased work hours. There's a graph in the book, in the beginning of the book, that charts – Uh, the increase from 1975 to 2016, the increase in work hours. And there's basically a mirror line that goes along with that to chart the measure of inequality, which is economists call it the Gini coefficient. Um, The second part of what you said, the gamification stuff is really about how employers have tried to inject a level of uh, fun or sort of fun competition into uh, the work environment. So, one example of this that became pretty popular is the company Coldstone Creamery, uh, everyone's favorite or least favorite mall ice cream place, um, has a video game. I think it's called Scoops. And you can practice scooping ice cream, <laughs> and uh, the person who does it fastest or whatever best uh, wins the game. And this became a way to train employees to kind of compete against each other. And then the video game became so popular, it became used outside of the company. Like you can play scoops by yourself now, even if you don't work there. And so it's just a small example uh, of ways that employers are trying to create an environment in which workers are sort of playing or having fun or enjoying themselves um, that doesn't involve making the work situation better. There's plenty of ways, reasons that work should be more enjoyable for people. But um, I think all those things should be mirrored with, you know, quality of changes and how much money people make, how much how many breaks they get, how long they are, uh, health and safety standards, all those things.
1: Now, the scoops game, that's, that sounds awfully um, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, you know, maybe
0: right yeah i mean whatever metaphor you want to use it's, it's it's an incredible it's just an incredible uh phenomenon i mean even um you know there's i think there's a story in the book about a video game company and they you know chart their uh well some some companies chart workers productivity on like a leaderboard so you can you can be working let's say in a in a factory and there's somehow bosses are measuring each individual worker's productivity. And as you fall or increase, your name moves up and down on the leaderboard. So you're basically competing against each other to work, to work harder. And that, you know, you can call that, I mean, I called it a game if you want. It's not really a, a game, but it is sort of what people refer to as gamification. So that level of, of control by management is what people typically mean when they use that phrase.
1: So, well, um, and talk. This is this is really is a fascinating book. Uh, it's extraordinary the amount of work, the amount of research you did to go into this, and um, I mean, I know you're a professional professor, sociologist, et cetera. I've always considered myself an armchair sociologist, Jamie. But, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, although once I went to college, which I went much later um, in years, once I went to college and studied um, communication theories, I decided I was an armchair ethnographer because I felt like I was a little bit oh, you know, great. elevated. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I liked it so much. But, um, but this is an extraordinary work. And even one thing I like even more is that even though you're going into, you go to some history, and uh, you've got your stats, you know, you go in depth on all of these matters. And yet, when you talk about specific people, you recognize uh, uh, the, the humanity of it. I mean, you call them out their names, and then you talk, uh, you apparently keep, in you know, call people or text with people who are working, uh, like the... The mother who's doing the uh, door, the delivery, food delivery, in a car while having to carry her daughter with her. Um, you show a concern and respect for these people that it seems like the the businesses don't, and I really appreciate that in here too. Um, yeah,
0: well, I mean, so you're talking about uh, Rebecca Wood, who mm. is a really amazing, and inspiring healthcare activist and she ended up through a variety of unfortunate circumstances being an Uber eats delivery person. Um, And uh, because of lack of childcare and lack of resources, basically had to ride around with her seven-year-old daughter in the back of the car from, you know, 9.00 PM to 2.00 AM delivering food to people in a college town. And there's, you know, the reason she got politicized is because she one night ordered food from a delivery app and that person showed up also with a child in the back seat. And she thought, wow, it's not just me. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not just this one isolated instance. It's not just my, Oh, woe is me? It's like a, a real problem that tons of people are facing. And, you know, you talked about the kind of armchair ethnography. I mean, I personally think that's great. There's a lot of professors, I think that sort of, or there's a tendency in academia to guard our profession as if uh, you know eight years of training uh, it, there's just there's, there's something important that i think that uh, we can all access in social science and that is like a critical and skeptical view of the world so i'm an academic i mostly write stuff for other academics but this book obviously is a, is a mass market book and so I wanted to share the story and the analysis of academics with a wider audience. And one way to do that, obviously, is just to tell it through people's stories. So, um,
1: and you've succeeded. <laughs> you yeah, really well,
0: that's great. That's, that's, that's good to hear. I mean, I am so um, it comes through in the book, and it probably would not surprise anyone who reads it, is that I'm on the left. And I think that it's important that people, especially now, given the time we're in and what we're going through politically, that people on the left learn to speak the language of everybody else. And uh, the left today is smaller than it used to be 50 years ago, but it's nonetheless bigger than it was five years ago. And I think that that recent ascendance, is really important especially as we transition to a new uh political regime because there's going to be people on the left who are going to hold management accountable it's not going to be the democrats and people on the on the left have long been the voice of workers and the voice of social change and in this very specific instance the voice of shorter hours so toward the end of the book i get into talking about you know how that might happen and how a movement for shorter hours might sort of be rebuilt or reimagined in America today.
1: You know, as as I was saying, you you, you just did a remarkable job of um, taking the subject and making it you know readable for us who are non-academics like me, and. Um, My comparison for that that I really admire, too, is my husband works in um, satellite communications. He knows a lot about, you know, cars, engine stuff. He's uh, rebuilding an MG. But I love the fact that he can explain something about those things to me or anybody else, something that I know nothing about, but he can do it without talking down to me or mansplaining. Right, right, right. I think my proof of that was when he was changing my brakes uh, putting on new brake pads, and the uh, nine-year-old girl next door said, "Do you know how to do the brake pads?" I said, "No," and she goes, "Well, he didn't just explain it to me, so let me tell you." <laughs> and she did with you the whole thing. Right, 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 and
0: so, right, right, right. So
1: I appreciate you not making us feel dumb, but you you brought the subject matter to us in a way that relates to everybody and gives us the information. And I'm, I'm sure, uh, a million others are grateful to you for that. Well, we've got a few That's minutes great. left you've been so well, yeah we're grateful uh you've been so generous with your time tonight and i i appreciate it and I've, it's gone by pretty fast for me i don't know about you so yeah uh, while we've got a few minutes um left i'm just going to toss out three subjects and let you <laughs> pick whichever one you want to talk about for the end sure one has to do with um uh, welfare, the work experience program, and Rudy Giuliani uh, the other right. one would be about um uh, sex workers they're right yep. and um, pick one of those
0: well it, you, you can't really end on Rudy Giuliani today <laughs> um because of all that of all that four men have gone through i mean he's hes brought it all upon himself obviously but um <laughs> the the you know it's funny like we think that we think that the worst thing now Giuliani ever did was all the recent stuff he's done which was like stuff in the Borat movie and the ridiculous uh total landscaping uh uh, press conference all that stuff and in fact and you know he was America's mayor after 9-11 all this stuff but you know from my perspective um you know, what's worse than that, actually, was screwing tens of thousands of workers out of welfare checks for a very long time, and, and which is what he did in New York City, by expanding, by basically helping to transform welfare into workfare. Now, New York City was a laboratory for uh, removing people from the unemployment rolls, from the welfare rolls, uh, and forcing them to work dehumanizing low-wage jobs, wearing different kinds of uniforms, demarcating them as welfare recipients, which they, a a happenstance, they universally describe as slavery, to your friend Esther's point a couple minutes ago. And um, so, you know, because remember that when people, so today, thanks to people like Giuliani and, frankly, thanks to people like the Clintons, um, we don't have... Welfare like we used to it was destroyed in 1996 and instead um, where we used to uh, you know uh, offer people a little bit of money for their hardship today by and large if you're uh, even if you're indigent even if you have extenuating circumstances to get a welfare check you have to work and Giuliani's part of that And the the work experience program, which has recently been um, transformed by welfare recipients, by incredible activists in New York City, it it basically doesn't exist as it used to. And it was quietly reformed so that the welfare programs that sort of predated Giuliani are slowly coming back, which allows people to go back to school, allows people to take care of their family members if they're sick, it allows people to... um, There's no reason why we have to have that many people cleaning the city parks for $7 an hour, less than minimum wage, which is what WEPP paid. So it's a good good place to end because though it was a horrible program that still exists in most parts of the country, Workfare, in New York City at least, it's a success story where activists and workers and civilians managed to overturn it after decades of fighting and I think it's a model for how for how we can transform that program elsewhere. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. And um, let's see, just a moment. I have, uh, okay, Peter from Chicago to send a message saying, thank you very much for this program. Thank you for this guest. This is an excellent subject, and I'm looking forward to reading this. And thank you, Peter, for your message. And Cool, thanks. And also from... Linda in uh, South Carolina, she said, wow, this is really a good history lesson for me, too. Uh, Thanks a lot, Jamie, and I'll be checking out the book, so thank you, Linda, very much. Um, Yeah, (laughs) okay, so I'm going to have to let you go. I'm not going to go on to sex, but this sentence... Okay, everything about the book is—it's not only the subject, it's not only how you deliver it, it's not only the perfect balance. You are such a good writer, and you—it's like you're—you're telling a friend, um, and the people you start off with, this was so and so, or you—you give people respect no matter what their situation. I appreciate it, but I've got to tell you though, this sentence, this sentence, I had to highlight. In my ebook, and it's going to stay with me. Dormy Daniels, the porn actress uh-huh. who, was, who was once poised to save the United States from the nightmare of the Trump presidency. And I'm not going to read the rest of the sentence, but just that part, is <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> <dang> it, girl
0: <laughs> Mhm Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the rest of the sentence, if I remember correctly, unfortunately shows that Stormy Daniels was on the wrong side of a labor dispute. And uh, there are, she was on the right side of the Trump thing, um, which hopefully we, at some point we'll figure out what really went down there. But um, the she did um, stands in the way of other sex workers, porn actresses, dancers, etc., who were trying to um, organize uh, pressure for better working conditions. And I, I they they've been have made some strides, actually. There's a whole section of the book that talks about um the way that sex workers have, have pushed back against the independent contractor status uh in california a recent which you know they, they've lost recently but i think that fight will probably continue in smaller doses but uh yeah good old stormy did make a cameo in the book
1: no she didn't and guess that's uh I think my listeners tend to skew to the left side, so that's that's all good and well. Uh, hey, it, it really is the podcast with more celebrities than the inauguration, so <laughs> although that's not a hard <laughs> achievement to make, right? Uh, right. Yes, and, and talking about that, then, too, there was a, um, a stripper, Antonia, who said, you know, like the Teamster strippers have one another's back. We all need to stand together, Antonia said. doesn't matter. Really, if you're second dick or gyrating on a lap, that's my coworker and that's my sister or brother, and yeah, I like her attitude. You know, we're Mm there. She's
0: she's a badass. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Like her style. So, Jamie K. McCollum, the book is uh, this is not your first book, but it's work over how round-the-clock work is Telling the American dream um, from Basic Books. Thank you so much. I, I, I know I probably kept you longer than, than you thought you would be, but I am so grateful to you for sharing your time, sharing your research, sharing your work with all of us, and uh, just wish you much continued success. And I hope you'll come back sometime.
0: Cool. Well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm writing another book now on COVID and uh, work, the COVID work situation, basically. Um, so whenever that's out. I'll let you know. We can talk again.
1: Yay! That's great. Thank you so much. All right. So um, we'll have you back. And as I always say to everybody, be good to yourself. Be good to each other. Um, there'll always be a place in the genie bottle for you, Jamie K McCallum. And, uh, and I, as I always say a song. All right.